So tonight we begin a new series entitled The Good Life, and it's a series that's going to be going through the book 1 Thessalonians uh, that's found in the New Testament. And I'm sure if I kind of pulled the room right now and I said, I want you to tell me what your definition of the good life is, I would get a lot of different answers. Some of you would be thinking specific things that you want to see happen in your life, relationships that you want to find, you want to see developed, promotions you want to achieve, things you want to create. All of these things you would kind of put on a list. You say, here's a good life for me. I think it's this, 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 and this. Once these things are accomplished, once these things are achieved and experienced, I will be living the good life. And it'll be different across the room. There'll be some consistency among many of the answers. There'll be a desire for joy and for peace. There'll be a desire for purpose, a desire for growth. Those things will probably be true of many of your explanations in terms of what the good life is, but they'll be very, very different. And the reason they'll be very different is because we live in a culture that says that the good life is defined by you. So if I ask you what the good life is, there isn't a stock answer. It's what you believe. This is what we hear, and this is what we believe, and this is oftentimes how we live, right? The good life are the things that I value. They're the things that I believe to be true. They're the things that bring me happiness, that are pleasurable for me. And so, of course, the good life is different for each and every person. And that sounds really, really good, right? When you hear that, you're like, that's awesome. I'm so thankful that I live in a culture that does not prescribe the good life for me, but it gives me the freedom to invent it for myself. But it's not really as wonderful as it sounds, because if you're honest, like me, when you begin to define the good life according to the values and the things that you enjoy... And you think, okay, if I just accomplish these things, if I just find these things, if I just experience these things, then I'll have the good life. What you find is that oftentimes a good life feels a little bit out of reach. Maybe you have some of the pieces, but not all of them. And so it feels frustratingly obscure. Like, what is the good life? Like in our culture, we'd be like, well, what is good? You know, we, we, we are so frustrated by that question because it doesn't feel like it's all there for us. Fulfillment the good life. And I have, I have good news for you. We're going to answer that question, what is the good life in this series? Because for us, the good life feels a lot like the philosopher Michael Scott in the office said, when he said, sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope to find it along the way. <laughs> That's how life feels, right? It's like, I'm just living it. I'm just going And I hope I find the good life along the way. I'm just doing what I think is right and good to the best of my ability. But this letter that is written to this church in in Thessalonians, Paul, who's our author, who's, you know, composing the majority of the content here, along with Sylvanus and Timothy, but he's the one writing it and, and the main brain behind this letter, he's identifying that in this church, that they are in fact living the good life, and then he's encouraging them and challenging them to continue forward and identifying some, some next steps for them. And so if you've been wondering what is the good life, stick with us throughout this series, and, and Paul, through God's word, is going to speak truth into that question. And so we're going to begin at the very, very beginning. This is a letter, as it says in the very first verse, that Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, they kind of write together. And the reason that they write this together is because they're the founders of this church in the city of Thessalonica. 
So they helped plant this church, they launched this church, but they're not there anymore because Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are all over the world planting churches and and reaching people and, and sharing the good news of the gospel to all of these cities all across the known world, especially the Mediterranean world. But this church and this city and these people are really near and dear to Paul's heart and to Sylvanus's heart and Timothy's heart. And so Paul crafts this letter with some of their input, and it says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And so this is directed to this young church in the city of Thessalonica. And in order for you to understand a little bit of what he's going to say and really kind of grab on to the depth and the challenge uh, and the encouragement that Paul's going to give to this church, you have to know a little bit about the city and these people. So the city of Thessalonica is in this area of the Roman Empire called Macedonia, which is like in in northern and central Greece, modern-day Greece. And this city is a really important city. It has been for a long time, but it is very important in this day and age because it's a strategically located city, meaning it has mountains around the city, so the harbor of the city is protected. It's one of the the main ports in the Mediterranean world because it can reach any city along the coast, and the ships can be safe there. So it's strategic in that sense, but not only is the port strategic, but it also sits at the intersection of the east-west trade route and the north-south trade route as well. And the mountains are lined with copper and gold and silver and lead. So this city is literally in the perfect place. It has natural resources. It has a thriving, safe port. It has the intersection of all the trade routes of the known world passing through it. And so you could kind of imagine what it feels like to live in this city. It is a city that is very prosperous. It is very influential in the Roman Empire. It is very influential in the known world. It is a city full of resources. It's a city that is very diverse because people are moving through this city for business all the time. And people are are rooting themselves there for a period of time. And so it's a very transient city as well. And it's a city that is, is thriving. But even though this city, Thessalonica, is termed a free city, it's not really free because it's ruled by the Roman government when Paul writes this letter in the first century. And it would have been felt. They would have felt that connection and a little bit of that oppression from the Roman rule, even though the Thessalonians living in there had this thriving, influential city. And actually, this city, too, has a rich cultural tradition because it was kind of the bedrock of the Macedonian Empire led by Alexander the Great. So there's so much involved here, but they would have felt that Roman kind of hierarchy in their life for two reasons. One is because there was an imperial cult that was alive and active in the city. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, during this time period, the emperor was worshipped as a god, as a demigod. And so there was a priesthood and a cult with a temple that people would go to and they would worship the emperor. And the majority of the people in the city would be involved with this cult. Why? Because if you want to get ahead in life, If you want comfort, you want opportunities for promotions and business, you need to be connected to Rome. And so people would worship the emperor with the empirical cult, and then there were Roman citizens living in the city 
that were set aside on a higher level than the rest of the Thessalonians. They were elites. And so you would buddy up with the Roman elites because you want to make sure that you're in Rome's good graces, that you have Romans saying nice things about you and your business and how you treat people so that you can make it ahead in life so that you can live the good life as you define it. So you can imagine how it feels to be a Christian in this city. The Christians have come to believe in faith in Jesus Christ, and they then believe that the emperor is not to be worshipped. They'll submit to his rule as king, but he's not to be worshipped. So they have no connection any longer with the empirical cult, which is upsetting to the Roman elites. And so there is tension in their faith. There are effects on their businesses, on their relationships. There is persecution and slander and ridicule and injustice that they are feeling as they face much, much affliction in the beginning of their faith. But this isn't the only tension point in the city, is the empirical cult and the Roman rule and all of that. It's even deeper than that. Because this city is a city that's pluralistic, meaning you can believe anything you want to believe. There's all these different kind of options for what you want to believe, and what you believe would have affected your everyday life, and they're deeply rooted in the city. And so everyone in this city had the coexist bumper sticker. Everyone had that bumper sticker because you could choose anything you wanted. You wanted to worship Apollo or Zeus, you wanted to worship Aphrodite or Dionysus or some Egyptian gods or Jesus. You could do Jesus too. Just, you could like mix them all together. You, most people are going to certainly worship the emperor, but then you can choose these other things as well. These are the, the idols that were worshipped, and there were temples all over the city. And sometimes we read about idol worship and we think, okay, well, that's like people had like little statues in their house. And, you know, if you become a Christian and you realize that you're not supposed to worship idols, like, just take the statue and put it in the trash, and now you're not an idol worshiper. It's, like, pretty simple. But that's not how it works. Because to follow and to worship these different idols all throughout the city would have affected your life. It shows up in how you live. For instance, if you follow and worship Dionysus as one of the gods that you follow— then Dionysus, who is the god of wine, would have created a value in your life for getting drunk. You literally get drunk to have a spiritual connection. Partying and drinking is a part of how you live and how you interact with people. And so if you, if you flee from worshiping Dionysus and you no longer worship that idol, there's great life change that's going to happen. Now all of your friends that believe that partying and getting drunk is the way to live and that's the good life, are not going to look at you that is seeking to have moderation and be like, what's wrong with you? Why, why, why would you do that? Or if you worship and follow Aphrodite, who is, the, who is the, uh, the, the patron god of sexual exploration, then you would have had a value of free sex. Have sex with anyone you want, when you want, how you want. And so if you leave that and you re reject that idol and you turn to follow after Jesus, well, now you're losing all of these relationships with people that live that way and believe that engaging in free sex is the way that you should live. There's tension in everyday life here to become a Christian. 
because of all the idols of the city. And you could pick any ones you wanted and you could choose any ones you wanted. But to choose just Jesus Christ would have brought about great tension and slander and ridicule and persecution and oppression because now you're an outsider. Now you're weird. You have to feel that. I mean, th- this city is so about this idea of just kind of doing what you will and using your body however you want that one of the main images in the city, I'm going to get honest with you guys, was the phallic symbol. That was the billboard. You drive around the city and that's what you see. So let's recap real quick. This is a city that's influential, prosperous, diverse, it promotes free sex, it's about image, it's about conforming to what everyone else is doing so that you don't rock the boat, it's about drunkenness and partying. Does it sound familiar? (laughs) With sexual billboards all around. This is our city, guys. Thessalonica and Miami are very, very much the same. And so you have these Christians that are living in the midst of this. And this is a young church. And Paul writes to them, and he wants to encourage them. He wants to challenge them and and give some more instruction. But the very beginning of this letter is just a letter of encouragement. He says this in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You see, this church is very dear to Paul and to Silvanus and to Timothy because they understand what it's like to live there. They know the tension of their faith. They know the temptations that they're facing. And so Paul says, listen, we pray for you guys all the time. We know what is taking place in your workplace, in your family, in your relationships. We understand the tension and the temptation. So we are lifting you up to God in prayer constantly. But he also writes to them and he tells them, but I want you to know something. The way that you've been living, the good life that you've been pursuing has made you famous. Look what it says in verses 7 and following. You have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So this is the region around Thessalonica. They have become famous Like, people know about this church and the people that are in this church, how they live and who they are and what they're about. But not only in the region, in verse 8 it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Very beginning of this letter, Paul says, Listen, you, you guys are famous in your region, but you need to understand that people have taken notice of your faith and how you've lived in the whole known world. What do do we have to say? It's unbelievable. People know about what it's like to live in Thessalonica. They understand the tension and the temptation, but the way that you've lived and the way that you've lived out your faith has made you famous. And so you think, you ask yourself, okay, why are they famous? Like, now I want to know why they're famous. Well, they're famous for two reasons. One is because they're about a gospel movement. And two is because they have gospel power. So two reasons why 
they're famous. Paul says that in the verse. He says, it's because your faith has sounded forth. It has gone out. This is a church that is truly catalytic to a movement. That's our fourth value of a church. If you want to know what it looks like to be catalytic to a movement, the Thessalonian Christians lived it out. You see, they lived out their faith in the context of the city and wherever God had them. They took all the things that they had been blessed with and they used them for the gospel. They used their influence, they used their resources, they used their opportunities for travel, they used their relationships, they used the tension, they used the weirdness of the decisions that they made to no longer engage in these things. They told their story. Their faith went out everywhere they went. They took every opportunity to share the good news of who Jesus is and how God has changed their life. You see, this church here in Thessalonica was not concerned only with what happens in their four walls. Now listen, they were surely concerned about that because it's not easy to be a Christian in this city. It's not easy to cultivate a community of faith in this city, but they were not only concerned with what happens inside of their building. And they weren't only concerned with what happens in their city even. They were concerned about what happens everywhere. Wherever God took them, whatever became of their lives, they would engage in a gospel movement. Their faith went forth. So whoever would listen, they would share their story. They would share their story of who God is and what the gospel is and how it's changed their life. Even if it meant ridicule and and persecution and people looked at them weird. When they went on business trips, they took their faith with them. And they shared about what God is doing in their city and what God has done in their life and what they believe. You see, it, it isn't as if this was like in the social media era where they just had a really great social media platform. And so everybody from all over was just like following them. And so they got to see what was happening inside of their church. The only way that people could know and they could have been made famous in this whole region and in the known world is that the people that were living in Thessalonica, that were going out on business, or the people that got moved from Thessalonica to other cities were sharing. They were sharing their faith. They were talking with people. They were engaging and using their influence and using their resources and using their relationships and using their work to share the truth of who God is and what God has done in their life. You see, they understood something very important, is that your faith is not all about you. Your faith is not all about you. It can be so easy to believe that, right? We live in a very individualistic culture. And so we are told that our faith is about us. Here's what we hear, and I'm sure this is what they heard in Thessalonica. Let's just all coexist, okay? You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There's many truths. Whatever you want is to be, to believe is good for you and true for you. That's true for you. Believe in Jesus. Don't believe in Jesus. Live this way. Don't live that way. Just pursue whatever makes you happy. This is what we hear This is what they heard. And this mentality of of believing that your faith is 
only about you or that is completely individualistic can seep in easily to the church and into your life. You may have heard that and you're like, no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I would probably say most of us in this room would say, you know what, there are certain pleasures and things that I'm restricting in my life because I believe that God has said that they're destructive and I need to restrict them. Or there are certain pleasures I need to avoid. Or there are certain things I need to enjoy in moderation, like drinking. Or certain things I need to wait for a specific time in life, like sex when I get married. There are all these things. And so many of us in the room would say, yes, I I understand. And that's how I want to live my life because God has defined these things. and I'm going to trust him with that. And I would also say that probably most of us in the room would say that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, you would say, yes, I don't believe truth is relative. I believe that Jesus is the way. Not one of the ways, he is the way. And I would say that more Christians probably need to learn to coexist. Not in the sense of like, just agree with everyone's truth, but learn how to respect people and show dignity to people when they have different beliefs. Learn how to have conversation. Learn how to share your story in a non-combative way. So those things would be true, I think, of most of us here, as was true of the Thessalonians. But here's where there's a sneaky temptation that comes in when you have a culture of individualism and how it affects your faith. You begin to believe that your faith is more or less only concerned with you. And there's a study that came out that revealed this. There's a study that just recently came out that said four out of 10 Christians don't attend church, and here's why. Quote, unquote, I practice my faith in other ways. What does that say? Four out of 10 Christians, 40% of Christians believe that it's not important to gather together with other people to participate in an external expression of faith because I practice my faith in other ways that I deem good and more helpful. And here's what the study didn't reveal. How many of the six out of 10 Christians go to church simply for themselves? How, how many Christians go to church because I go to church because I like to start my week that way. I go to church because it makes me feel good. I go to church because I like live music and the, the music's great. I go to church because sometimes I stay awake during the sermon. And I get a nugget that I can apply to my life. It's not to say that you can't be excited about the, the personal benefits of faith, but it's so easy to make your faith completely about you. And here's what happens. Here's how you know. Church becomes optional, and you engage in it when it's convenient. Church is about what it offers you. What are the programs like? What's the music like? Do I like the pastors? Do I like the people? Some of them I don't, so I'll go find a new one. When you're sitting and you're listening to the announcements... And you're hearing about all these opportunities to engage and opportunities to serve. You think, that's for someone else to do. That's not for me. There's all these different things. It's so easy for us to believe that our faith is completely about us. It's it's just about me. But listen, what 
the Thessalonian Christians reveal, and it's true of faith, is that your faith is external. It's to go forth. It's to go out. And the reason that the church gathers corporately on Sunday is that you remind yourself of that. You remind yourself that your faith is external. That's why we sing together. Praise God we don't ask you to stand up individually and sing. You know? Sometimes when I leave my mic on, I sing individually, you know, and it's, it's embarrassing enough. We sit and we listen to God's word together. We come to communion together. We pray together. We go in the back and spend time in the back together. It's another thing that I was, you know, processing and thinking. You know, when your faith becomes about you and you alone, there's two responses to when church is over. One, you just leave. Why? Because who cares about the people here? I'm not here for the people. I'm here for the sermon, for the music. Or two, you stay and you talk with people, but you only talk with people that you know and you like. Because it's about you. You see, we gather together every Sunday to remind ourselves that our faith is not internal only. It is external. It is to go out. It is to engage This is why we have community groups. Community groups are not simply a Bible study for you to go to get something for yourself. You will. You will be encouraged and challenged and you you will be prayed for, but it's for you to go and to give. You may think to yourself, I don't have like anything to give. Like I don't really know much about the Bible. I don't like know theology. I barely even know what theology means. What do I have to offer? All I have are questions and doubts. Yes, that's what you have to offer and you need to offer it. You need to give it. Your faith is to be external. God wants to use your story and your questions and your doubts for a gospel movement. We don't serve as a church to feel good, like, okay, I served once a month and I got the gold star and now I feel better about myself. We serve to reveal the love of Christ to other people, to bless other people. And here's the kicker, and this is what we really see in the church in Thessalonica. Your faith is to be external even when you're not at church on Sunday or with Crossbridge people. Your faith is to be external everywhere you go, in your friend circles, in your family, at work, on business trips, at Starbucks in the morning, at happy hour on Friday night. Your faith is to be external and evident everywhere you go. It's what it means to be a part of a gospel movement. You realize that the movement of the gospel is something you've been invited to participate in, and you bring your faith into every aspect of your life. And that really is the good life. It really is a good life. And here's what we see in the Thessalonian Christians. They realize something. They came to faith with much affliction and with tension and great temptation but they understood that they were saved from something and for something. They were saved from their sin, that Jesus had given his life for them on the cross. He was buried, and he came forth from the grave, resurrected and victorious, and they are now forgiven and freed and invited into a relationship with God. They've been worshiping all these false idols. They've been living these lives that they thought would be the good life of just engaging in free sex and partying and doing whatever you can to make it ahead in their careers, and they've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they've experienced something different. Real joy, real purpose, real meaning, real hope. 
but it didn't end there. It wasn't as if, they, okay, well, I've been forgiven from my sins. Now I just have to wait till heaven. No, they realized that they're saved for something. And not just been saved to wait, they've been saved for God's mission now. That they've been saved to be a part of a gospel movement together in the life of their church, wherever they go. That they had an internal faith that exploded into an external faith. Look what verse 9 says. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Here's what people keep hearing about this church. Notice the order. They turned to God from idols to serve God. There was an internal faith as they turned to God in faith. And what happened was when they turned to God in faith, it changed the way they lived. They turned from idols. They repented. Their life changed. There was transformation. But it didn't stay there. They then gave their lives to serve God. The time, the talent, the treasure that they had, they engaged in a gospel movement. And it was evident not only in their region and their city, but all over the known world. And you think to yourself sometimes, like, ah, how is this possible? This young church in this city, all these, these brothers and sisters in Christ come together to live this way, that it gets known in a non-social media era. It's because they had gospel power. They held to it. They knew it. Look what Paul says in verse 3. He said he's remembering this young church, that they, they were known for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that Paul, in another letter to a church in Corinth, he says that there's this trinity of Christian values, faith, hope, and love. And then he gives a little bit of an additional information here on these values or these virtues. He says that they were known for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it meant to live out a gospel movement and why they were known. There was this gospel power behind them because they were working out their faith and they were laboring in love and they had steadfast hope in Jesus Christ. So I was thinking about this, this church and what they're facing similar to what we face in our city and you think to yourself, how did they, how did they fight against that tension of faith that you feel how did they fight temptation that is all around them at all times? How did they not just like give up or feel like there's no way that this can become something or God can really use me? How did they fight against those things? It's right here. They had gospel power because they understood they were to, to do the work of faith. It's really important you understand how he says that, the work of faith. It's good works produced by faith. It's not good works because they're like, okay, now that I'm saved and now that I'm a Christian and I'm in this really difficult scenario in this difficult culture and city, now I have to prove to God how good I am and how much I believe by doing all these good works. No, 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 no. It was works of faith. It's faith that produces good works. James in his letter says, in his letter says something very interesting. He says that faith without works is dead. You've maybe heard that before. You're like, whoa. 
And a lot of people kind of misconstrue that. They think that faith plus works equals salvation, but he's not saying that, and neither is Paul. He's saying that faith inevitably and naturally produces good works. Internal faith becomes external. It doesn't stay just inside. It's not just about you. It goes out to others. That's why when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love God, and I've got to tell you the second as well, and love others. Internal faith always burst out to external faith. And so they lived a life of faith by caring for other people, by living a life of good works, not because they needed to perform for God, but because their faith was producing that. It was motivating that in them. And then he says that they're also known for their labor of love. As they're battling temptation, as they're feeling the tension of the city, what is behind it is love. It's a labor of love. Because of their love for God and their love for others, that is why they labor. That's why they didn't quit. That's why they didn't give up. That's why they came together. That's why they took advantage of opportunities that seemed like, I don't know if this is a good idea or if this is going to be comfortable. They took advantage of it because of love. And all of this is buoyed by the last value or virtue that he puts forth is that they had a steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. This is what was supporting all of this. What does that mean to have a a steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ? It means that you, because of your faith, because you know who Jesus is, you are always clinging to his promises. You have hope in who he is, not who you are or who other people are. And how they're going to advance your good life or how you're going to be able to achieve your good life. Now, you've already received the good life from Christ and his promises are true of you. He's always faithful. He's always good. His mission is going to be accomplished with or without you. But guess what? He invites you into it. You see, Jesus's mission is that he's going to renew all things. So we're like, yes, yes, the renewal of all things broken the renewal of all injustice. But he does it through you. He invites you into that movement and he wants you to know as you're facing temptation and tension, as you're falling to temptation, as you're feeling broken and inadequate, that your hope isn't in yourself or in other people. Your hope is in Jesus who's victorious and who's already accomplished all things for you. You see, this is gospel power. When you believe that, when you know that, it causes you to live a life of faith that is producing good works, to labor out of love because you're rooted in who Jesus Christ is and his promises. And so you take full advantage of being a part of a gospel movement because it is the good life. It's an amazing life. Paul says in verse 4 and 5, he says this, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just something you believe with your mind, but you experience its power. It doesn't mean that you're always going to have some really enlightened emotional experience all the time. If you're looking for that, you're not going to find it all the time. But the promise is, is that you have 
the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, working in your life, even when you don't recognize him. You have gospel power. You have access to it each and every day, each and every moment. In order to live a life that's engaged in gospel movement, you have to remind yourself of that and engage in that. You see, when you don't feel like it, when you feel like giving up, when you feel burnt out, when you don't feel like engaging, when you don't know if God can use you, if you feel broken because you keep falling to temptation, the tension of faith is so exhausting living in the city, especially in your workplace, whatever it may be, you remind yourself that you have power because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is right now, if you're a person of faith, living and active inside of you, and he is encouraging you to engage in his mission. He is convicting you when you've made your faith about yourself instead of being, living it out externally with others. He is guiding you when you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do? Where do I go next? He's comforting you when you fall and when you feel inadequate, reminding you most of all that you are con connected to Christ, you are united to him, that your hope is in him and not in yourself. This is given to you in faith. We share so many similarities with this Thessalonian church and these Thessalonian Christians. We feel that tension. We face similar temptations. We struggle. And we have the same calling of them as them, which is to trust that the good life is engaging in a gospel movement. The good life is actually seeing your life as part of a bigger story. That God is actually inviting you in to be a part of it. To give your time and your talent and your treasure. To engage with his people. To use your opportunities at work and your friend circles. To step into that conversation that you know you should step into but you're fearful. That is in fact the good life. And when you doubt it and when you're struggling to remember that you have gospel power because you have the Holy Spirit alive and active inside of you. You see, what I love about this letter is that it reminds us that though we are a young church, God uses young churches. It doesn't matter how many resources you have. It doesn't matter how many people are here on Sunday. It doesn't matter how large your pastoral staff is. God uses young churches to do great things when they give themselves to his movement, his gospel movement, and they rely on his power. And so in the words of Trick Daddy, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Or as St. Catherine of Siena eloquently put it, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. Let's pray.